looking at Mark chapter 15, and particularly verses 21 to 39. Mark 15, verses 21 to 39. Well, over two decades ago, a, a group of researchers conducted an experiment now known as the Invisible Gorilla, and they shot a video of of uh, two groups of three people, um, a, a group dressed in all black, passing a basketball to each other, and, and three people dressed in all white, passing a basketball to each other. And those who, who participated in this experiment were then told to, to watch the video, and they were told to count how many times the three people in white clothing passed the ball to each other. The vast majority of the people who watched the video got the number right. It was 15 times. Then after the video was watched, the researchers would, would ask, did you see the gorilla? You see, in the, in the middle of the video, a lady in a, a gorilla costume walks right smack dab into the middle of the screen and starts beating her chest and looks around a bit and, and spends nine seconds total on screen and then walks off the other side. And everyone thinks that they couldn't have missed such an obvious oddity. And yet 50% of the people who have participated in this experiment had no idea that the gorilla was ever there. And what this video showed the researchers is, is that we as people can often stare straight at something and yet miss it completely. It's, they call it inattentional blindness. And it's something we're all prone to in, in some measure in life every day. Much of what crosses our line of sight never actually registers on the level of consciousness. We as human beings are entirely capable of sometimes staring straight at something without ever actually seeing what it is we're looking at. This is true on a material level. It's, it's also one of the recurring truths we've seen throughout Mark's gospel. And this is true on a spiritual level as well. Over the last two years or so, we've, we've been walking through Mark's gospel, and Mark has shown us the, the, the people in Israel there, particularly their leaders, those who supposedly knew the scriptures, they've looked upon Jesus, they've looked upon him as the Messiah, they've listened to his teaching, they've witnessed his miracles, and yet they've missed him completely. We've seen the same with the disciples of Jesus as well, again and again, particularly in Mark 8 through 10. We've seen those called by Jesus, those who have been with Jesus, who have looked upon Jesus, who have listened to Jesus, and yet somehow they've remained somewhat blind to him and his teaching. And Mark has been repeatedly bringing this to our attention so that he might caution us, so that he might warn us against this, this blindness, and so that he might call us to see Jesus for who he truly is. And we want to heed Mark in this this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now and ask him to give us sight, to empower us by his spirit, to be able to see and understand what he means to show us in Mark 15, 21 through 39. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, the one who, who sent your Son to give recovery of sight to the blind. Open our eyes here this morning. 
that we may behold wondrous things in your word, so that we might behold what is most wondrous in your word, namely your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy. May we open our eyes and see the beauty and excellence of the Son of God here. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. We are obviously nearing the end of our journey through Mark's gospel, but in no way means that things are, are winding down. In fact, the opposite is true here. We're, we're coming to the climactic event of the gospel according to Mark. The whole book has been leading us to this point. The whole book, particularly in the first half, has been making the case that Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the Christ and the Son of God. Mark began his his whole gospel with the declaration of this truth in Mark 1.1, saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 1 goes on to record God the Father's attestation of Christ's sonship in Mark 1.11, where God says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son. Moreover, this this entire book hinges with a declaration of this truth in Mark 8.29, when the apostle Peter confesses, that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. And and now this morning, Mark will end his gospel with a declaration of this truth in verse 39, and that from an unexpected source. 
Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, Mark wants us to see. But, but Mark has also been continually telling us, particularly in the last half of this book, that, that this Christ and Son of God is also the suffering servant. He's the one who was long promised and foretold in the Old Testament. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, who, would, who would come to his people and be crushed in the place of his people, all for the salvation of his people. And this is why Jesus has foretold his own sufferings and crucifixion three times already, making references to it many more times in Mark's gospel. Mark has wanted us to see, and he's continuing to show us here, that this Son of God is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. He's the innocent sufferer of Psalms 22 and 69, as we'll go on to see here. But with that, we need to see here that the entirety of Mark's gospel has been leading us to this culminating point. This is the climax of Mark's gospel, where the Christ and the Son of God suffers in the place of sinful humanity for our salvation. The big idea that we're looking at here is that the Son of God is crucified in the plan of God to appease the wrath of God. And we'll see this idea here as we just walk through our text, simply seeing that the Son's suffering was planned, the Son's suffering was propitiatory, and the Son's suffering was revelatory. But first, the Son's suffering was planned. As the last verse of last week's text told us, They're now leading Jesus away to crucify him. Crucifixion is one of history's most horrific and humiliating, despicable and detestable forms of execution. It was an excessive and public form of punishment reserved only for the lowest of the low. A Roman citizen couldn't be crucified, and even among those not citizens of Rome, it was reserved for those deemed as the lowest caste in society, for the likes of slaves and violent criminals, insurrectionists, and the like. The Romans would typically flog their victims before crucifixion, which is sometimes enough to kill a person outright. They would then, depending on the type of uh, tree or the type of uh, instrument used in crucifixion, they would then strap a crossbeam on the back of the victim and, and march them down a public road in order to make a spectacle and a lesson of the one crucified. And once at their destination, they would strip the victim, fasten the cross to the upright post, nail the victim to the cross, and raise them up where this exhausted individual would then bleed out from their many, many wounds and asphyxiate and agonize in pain, and die a slow, torturous death. Isaiah 52 and 53 foretells this this very event in the ministry of the Son of God. We read some of it earlier. Isaiah 52, 14 says that his torturings and sufferings would be so severe that his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You couldn't even tell that he was a human being from the, the brutal wounds done to his body. Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of his being nailed to a cross, says that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 10 tells us that all of this was in God's will and plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, this crucifixion, this suffering, this death is the will of God. This was the plan of God for Jesus to suffer, to be crucified, to be executed, to die. And that's something Mark seeks to make abundantly clear to us here. Almost every verse 
shows that this crucifixion fulfills several scriptural texts. This event has been foreshadowed and foretold, has been planned. This is not taking place in a vacuum. This is taking place within a larger story and plan with a particular aim and purpose. Verse 22 tells us that the place in which Jesus was crucified was this hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Evidently, as the hill's name indicates, this was a common place for such executions. Verse 23 says that once arriving there, uh, someone, it doesn't say who, offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. And at that time, this wine and myrrh mixture would have been used as a numbing agent. They thought it might dull the senses, cloud the mind, help ease the pain of crucifixion, and yet Christ refuses the drink. He intends to remain clear-minded here. He refuses this drink that he might instead drink the full cup that the Father has for him here. And, and, and of course, Mark mentions this drink being offered to Christ here, as well as in verse 36, because this was something foreshadowed for us in Psalm 69, 21. There, the, 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 the king of Israel, David, was writing. He's complaining to God about his innocent sufferings. He was writing that He's writing this as his enemies surrounded him and were humiliating him, he says. And in his complaints in verse 21, he says that they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. They gave me sour wine to drink. This, this occurrence during the sufferings of Christ was foreshadowed for us in Psalm 69, showing us something of how this is fulfilling God's own plan. See this moreover as we go on in verse 24 where it says, And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Jesus here has obviously been stripped of his clothes. It was typical for someone to be crucified completely naked. It's possible it was permitted for the crucified in Israel to retain their loincloth. But, but either way, they, they've taken Jesus' clothing here and they're, they're casting lots to see who might claim his clothing for themselves. And Of course, this likewise has been foreshadowed for us in the writings of King David. Psalm 22, we find David again crying out to God as an innocent sufferer. And when we come to verses 16 to 18 of Psalm 22, we see David write that that dogs encompass me, Gentiles encompass me. A company of evildoers surrounds me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Listen, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, this too has been foreshadowed. This has been foretold. Likewise, showing that this is the plan of God. This was planned, which we continue to see as we keep going here. We find that the charge against Jesus and the inscription was king of the Jews, He was crucified between two others here in verse 27. They're called robbers, which would have been their charge. This seems to be communicating that that these two were were probably co-conspirators with Barabbas from the previous passage. These were likely men who participated in in this insurrection, which involved murder and robbery alongside Barabbas. And this, this tells us that these two men were convicted criminals who, unlike Christ, were guilty of the crimes they were accused of. And what Mark wants to come to our minds as we see this statement here, and that which Luke's gospel makes abundantly clear, is that this too is a fulfillment of a scriptural text. Isaiah 53, 12, when speaking of the coming of the suffering servant, Isaiah writes that he was, he was numbered with the transgressors. 
He was counted among criminals. He was counted with criminals. He was given the same condemnation and suffered the same punishment right alongside these convicts, even though he was entirely innocent. This too was foretold. This shows us it's all happening according to God's plan. Which is confirmed lastly for us as we see this mockery Jesus is receiving here. Here he's being mocked by the Roman soldiers when they call him the king of the Jews. They're not the only ones there though. Executions like this would have been extremely public events. People would have been passing by, just walking by while this is occurring. This was a public place. Some, some likely even stuck around. It's as a, you know, have you ever watched one of those old Western movies where there's a hanging and, and the whole town seems to come and gather for this hanging, almost as, as if it's like a form of entertainment? Well, that same sort of thing would have happened with crucifixions in Jesus' day. Many would have come out to witness such an event. And those who were there and who were passing by Jesus here, verse, verses 29 to 30 tells us, they were deriding him, wagging their heads, saying, uh-huh. You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And then not just the soldiers, but the chief priests and the scribes are the same. It says here, verses 31 to 32, it tells us, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. We've seen him save others throughout his ministry in Israel. He's healed others of leprosy, of paralyzation, of blood issues, of demonization, even of death. And yet they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They mock him and revile him, and, and not just the Roman soldiers and those passing by and the chief priests and the scribes, but also, verse 32 tells us, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They're all mocking him. And this is all taking place just as Psalm 22 foreshadows and foretells where David wrote, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, not just some, but all those who pass by, the soldiers, the priests, the scribes, the criminals on either side, they all mock him. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They all mock him. Fulfilling Psalms 22 and 69, as well as Isaiah 52 and 53. Jesus, friends, this was foreseen. This was foretold. This was forewilled. This is the plan of God. It is God, Mark 14, 27, who strikes the shepherd. Mark wants us to see this. This is the will of God being fulfilled at every turn. Mark wants us to see that the son's suffering were planned and willed by God. It may all seem like it's out of control. It may seem like the powers of darkness have overcome here the light of God's kingdom. It may seem here that Jesus and God's plans have failed. Mark wants us to see that nothing could be further from the truth. This crucifixion, these sufferings, this death, it's all taking place by the sovereign plan and design of God. The Father and the Son in their meticulous providence designed this very day and event and foretold it in holy writ. What might this say to us today? For one, this is, this is a deeply, deeply encouraging truth for us when we suffer. 
and the other elders and I, we, we know that there's been a, a, a depth and prevalence of sufferings for people in this room over the last several years. You might know that better than anybody. I know that many in this room have, have, have undergone hardship and suffering and pain within the last few years. I, I know that, that some in this room have dealt with terrible sickness and pain in their bodies. And that some in this room have, have felt the scorn and faced the derision of their enemies, sometimes by enemies they thought were friends. And that some in this room have been falsely accused and slandered. Some in this room have been betrayed and abandoned. Some in this room have felt the sting of death hit their homes and their families. But here's good news. What we witness here in Mark 15 is... This is the worst thing to have ever happened in human history. This is an injustice, the measure of which nothing can match. This is the suffering and crucifixion and death of the pure, spotless, perfect Son of God. He's going through the hell of God's wrath for us here. There's never been anything more terrible, more awful, more unjust than this. And yet this was God's plan to achieve our greatest and ultimate salvation. And if that's the case, if God has taken the worst thing to have ever happened in human history and made it the best thing to have ever happened in human history for us, if he's taken the, the, the most terrible suffering and turned it into the greatest salvation, then you can rest assured that whatever suffering and hardship and pain you've gone through or are going through or will go through, that if you're in Christ, he's using it for something good. He's using it in his plan to bring your ultimate good and salvation. And that, doesn't that just give us hope in the midst of suffering? Doesn't that just give us a joy that suffering can't take away? Doesn't that give us a resilience and rest that endures even in the midst of the deepest suffering? It does remember this. This is the worst thing to have ever happened in human history. This is the worst that humanity could throw at God and all by the plan of God to bring about the best thing in human history. The sun suffering was planned. Then it wasn't just planned. It was also planned for a particular purpose, which we see as we move on here. The sun suffering was propitiatory. It was propitiatory. And I know that's a $2 word, but it's a biblical word. You can find it in Romans 3, Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, 1 John 4. Propitiation is a biblical word. It means a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. A wrath-appeasing, wrath-averting, wrath-assuaging sacrifice. And in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, he took on the righteous wrath of God so that God's just judgment for our sin would not fall on those of us who trust in him. The son's suffering was propitiatory. And if we see that the son's sufferings were planned by looking at the scriptures, we see here that the son's sufferings were propitiatory by looking at the signs. There are signs here in this historical event that communicate this theological reality. They show us what's taking place theologically in the suffering of Jesus. And the first sign is in verse 33. It tells us that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from about noon to 3 p.m., darkness fell upon the whole land. 
probably meaning the, the area of Judea there. And there's no apparent you know, natural explanation for this. This is not a solar eclipse. This would not have occurred at this time of year. This is supernatural. This is a divine sign. And what's this sign signifying? Well, remember that it's Passover week. And with that in mind, this, this darkness should bring to our recollection the ninth plague of darkness that fell upon the land of Egypt in, in Exodus 10. As a sign of, in a part of the outpouring of God's judgment upon the nation of Egypt, God sent a plague of darkness. And what that darkness communicates is the withdrawal of God's gracious, favorable presence. Remember that, that God is light, in Him is no darkness, and so when darkness falls on Egypt in Exodus 10, it's, it's indicating the removal of God's favorable presence. It's, it's indicating a, a removal of His presence to bless and to do good, and instead it indicates His judgment and abandonment. Same reality, seen in the prophecy of darkness and judgment in Mark 13, 24. Same as seen in Revelation 16, darkness is a sign of God's judgment. It's a sign of the withdrawal of His favorable presence. Only it's worth stating that, that the one being judged and forsaken here is not Egypt. It's not the oppressive empire here that might correspond to Egypt in the minds of the people of Rome. No, the one being judged and forsaken here is none other than the Son Himself. And this is confirmed for us in the words of Jesus that follow. The cry of dereliction is recorded for us in verse 34. Jesus cries out the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. He says them in Aramaic. Mark transliterates them into Greek. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This darkness is a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus. We need to be careful here. As many in the past have, have spoken of, of this text in very irresponsible ways, people have said things like, here, there's a break in the Trinity. Or here, the, the, the two, two of the persons in the Trinity, the Father and the Son, are, are separated from one another. And and that's just not the case. The Father and the Son are one in deity, one in essence, one in being. God cannot change. His oneness is eternal, constant, unchangeable. And so our understanding of this passage and event should take that truth into account. However, we do need to see and confess here that what's taking place in, in a mysterious, inexplicable manner is that the Christ and Son of God is taking upon himself the judgment and wrath of God for human sin. This cover of darkness and this cry of dereliction shows us that the hell of God's wrath is here falling upon the spotless one, the excellent one, the eternal one. And because of that fact, Mark is showing us that God's just wrath and judgment is removed from those who trust in him. Those of us who trust in Christ are now free from the penalty we deserve because of our sin, because Jesus took it in our place. Here, 2 Corinthians 5 would tell us, the one who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that his righteousness might be credited to our account, so that we might be welcomed into the very presence of God. You realize what this means for you, Christian? This means that those sins 
from your past that haunt you, that causes your face to redden, that, that causes your heart to fear God's displeasure. The penalty for them has already been paid and paid in full. God's wrath and anger and displeasure no longer hangs over your head. It's been entirely removed from you, and that completely in the all-perfect, sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And even your present sins, the ones that are maybe coming to mind from this past week, the, even your future sins, the ones you're going to commit this upcoming week or this month or so on, even those sins are now not met with God's wrath and anger if you are in Christ, but only with His compassion and kindness. There's no wrath left over for you. Jesus absorbed every last drop of God's wrath. He soaked it up like a sponge. And so even in your sin now, God moves toward us, not with anger and condemnation, but with compassion and kindness. He does confront us for our sin. He does convict us of our sin. He does want to rid, of, rid us of our sin, but only that we might fully, more fully experience his love and grace and presence in our lives. And this is seen in the second sign of this passage. So we keep on reading. Verses 37 to 38 tells us that when Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. There are actually two curtains in the temple there. There was the, the outer curtain that separated the court of Israel from the court of women. And that curtain would have been potentially visible to anyone who visited the temple at that time. But, but there was also an inner curtain, a curtain that, that very few would actually see. It was a veil that closed off the Holy of Holies, the, the very place that contained the very presence of Yahweh among his people. It was a place that only the high priest would enter, and that fearfully, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, with the blood of a sacrificial goat. It seems if we read Hebrews 6, 9, and 10, that this is actually the curtain, the veil, that tore in two from top to bottom. Now, this is no small thing. This, this curtain was nearly 60 feet high and four inches thick. And this substantial, seemingly impenetrable curtain was what marked off the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, and that to show something of humanity's separation from the Holy One. I remember this last year, sometime late spring, I, I, I came home from work one day. It was a warm, rainy day. We have, a little, we have a little dirt pit in our backyard for our kids to play in. We think kids should play in dirt. It's good for them. So we made a space in our backyard for our kids to do that, and remember I came home, it was a rainy spring day, and the kids have been playing in this, this dirt now because of the rain mud pit all day, and they were completely covered and caked in mud from head to toe, their legs, their arms, their clothes, their faces, their hair, their backs, somehow everything, they, they, they were covered and caked in mud, and, and we had some dinner guests coming over that night, so... You know, our house was cleaner than normal. And uh, so when the time came for them to get ready for our guests and for dinner, I remember saying something to them like, you are not coming into this house like that. You are not coming into this house completely covered in mud. And Father of the Year Award, I sprayed them down with a hose in the backyard for a while before they came into the house. 
And this veil said something similar to humanity. You're, you're not coming in here like that. You're not coming in here with the filth of your sin, with the depravity of your hearts, with the rebellion of cosmic treason in your souls. You will not come in here into God's welcome and favorable presence because God is uncompromisingly holy and just and pure. Sin requires the wrath and judgment and forsakenness of God. In his justice, he cannot overlook our rebellion against him. And yet what this veil of darkness and this tearing of the veil signify to us is that we rebellious, treasonous, broken sinners because of the cross of Jesus Christ are now given full welcome into the very presence and favor of God. That Jesus has taken on the judgment we deserve. We get the free welcome He deserves. Because He took the furious wrath we deserve. We now receive God's delight because Jesus received His dereliction. We get forgiveness because Jesus was forsaken. We get salvation because He suffered. And His suffering was propitiatory. Then it wasn't just planned and it wasn't just propitiatory. It was also revelatory. Jesus' sufferings, his sacrifice, reveal this astounding reality that Jesus is the Son of God. Here are these two themes that we were talking about earlier, these two themes that we've seen present throughout Mark. Jesus being the Son of God and the suffering servant merge together, collide together, are welded together beautifully. Israel at this time had no concept for this. They, they believed in a coming Messiah. It would be the Christ, it would be the Son. They had no concept that this Christ was the same one prefigured in Isaiah 52 and 53, and in Psalms 22 and 69. They, they, they could not see these Two Old Testament figures were actually one and the same. And that it had to be so. But Mark shows us that this is the case. He shows it that it's in the very sufferings of Jesus that we see he's the Messiah and Son of God. Notice how important seeing is in this whole passage. Maybe you notice that. Verses 35 and 36, after Jesus says, cry of dereliction, it seems that some standing there misunderstood him to be calling Elijah to come and relieve him of his sufferings. And so they, they say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And what they're saying is that they wanted to see if Jesus would in some way be rescued and thereby vindicated from his sufferings by Elijah. Moreover, the chief priests and the scribes and their mocking of Jesus in verses 31 and 32 say he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. That if, if, they, if they see him come down and rescue himself, if they see that happen, if they see that display of raw power and vindication, they say they'll believe. But, but what's ironic about that is, is that it's actually the very thing they're seeing in this moment that shows them that he is the Son, that he's the Christ. They're staring straight at the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, and yet they miss it completely. 
talk about inattentional blindness. There is a deep spiritual blindness on the part of those present. They're staring straight at the full revelation of Jesus as the Son of God without even realizing what they're looking at. One theologian says of this very reality, Christopher Watkins, he's recently written that, that Christ's refusal to come down from the cross is the very reason that he is the Son of God, a term that designates the Messiah who rescues God's people. If he is to be God's Messiah, then the one thing he cannot do is save himself. Jesus is the Savior because he refuses to come down from the cross. You see, it's in the very reality that he doesn't save himself that we see him to be the Son. The chief priests, the scribes, the people, they all miss this. It's in the sufferings of Jesus that he's revealed to be the Son. It's in his suffering that we come to see him as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. What's also ironic is who doesn't miss this? A Gentile in our passage doesn't miss this, possibly two Gentiles. One at the end of our passage sees us so clearly, possibly one at the beginning too, the beginning of our passage, a man named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a, in North Africa. It's modern-day Libya. It's possible that Simon was a Jewish man who now lived in Cyrene and was in town for Passover. It's also possible that he was an African man. He was a God-fearer like the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8 visiting for the same reason. Whatever the case is, Verse 21 says that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon was, was, was just standing nearby, maybe just minding his own business, maybe watching, when the Roman soldiers forced him to help Jesus carry his cross. Jesus had been so weakened by the flogging that he couldn't continue to carry his cross down the Via Dolorosa However, what's peculiar here is that Mark shows us that his original audience, which would have been the church in Rome, they knew Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus. In fact, it's possible that this is the same Rufus that Paul sent greetings to in Romans 16, 13. It seems possible that, that Simon saw Jesus' suffering, saw the fulfillment of, of the scriptural foreshadowings and foretelling, saw the signs, saw the sufferings, and thereby saw that Jesus is the Son of God. That he then passed this down to his sons who became members of the church in Rome. It's possible. I'd say it's probable. Then our passage ends more clearly with a, a Gentile centurion seeing what the scribes and the chief priests and the people did not. Passage ends in verse 39 saying that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Centurion was a Roman soldier who oversaw 100 other Roman soldiers. This, this centurion was in charge of the Roman soldiers here who, who were crucifying Jesus. He, he witnessed this all. He oversaw it all. He was present for it all. And when he saw Jesus lifted up on that cross, bleeding, suffocating, dying, by God's eye-opening grace, he saw that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners like him. This is what the son's sufferings revealed. It was revelatory. 
And God gave the centurion eyes to see it. And the centurion thereby makes this good confession of Jesus being the Son of God. Remember, remember how much Mark is made of blindness in sight throughout his gospel. And here at the very climax of his gospel, he beckons us to see like this centurion sees. So it's worth asking, friends, what, what do you see this morning? Are your eyes open? Look at the scriptures. Do you see that this was God's plan? Look at the signs. Do you see that Jesus is your substitute and your propitiation? Look at the suffering one here with the eyes of your heart. Do you see him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you confess him? Do you trust him as your savior? Do you rest in him as your propitiation? Do you rely on him as your substitute? This is what Mark is beckoning us and inviting us to. To like the centurion, to see and confess that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. Like the Cyrenian, carry our own crosses and follow him in his crucifixion. Are your eyes open? Do you see Christ as God wants you to see him? That's the question Mark puts to us here in the revelation of the suffering of the Son of God. Do you see him? And if you see him, confess him. Pick up your cross and follow him and trust that in this most trust in this most precious truth that the son of God has suffered in the plan of God to appease the wrath of God and that for you so that you can be free so that you can be granted eternal life in the presence of God our savior because of what Jesus has bore on your behalf we're going to end as we began here this morning. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to give us sight to see Christ as we ought. Let's go to him now. Father, grant us eyes that see. Illumine our darkness. Open the blind eyes of our hearts. Give us clearer sight. As Paul prayed and. Ephesians 1, give us the the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our understanding to the revelation of your dear Son so that we might know Him, trust Him, love Him, confess Him, and follow Him as your Son and as the suffering servant. May we see Him in the Word just proclaimed. May we see him now in the elements of bread and wine. May your spirit cause us to behold him afresh. Renew our communion with him and with one another and thereby strengthen us to go out and follow him and represent him in this world in the time that you've given us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his glory. Amen.